0: From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Across the globe, forest fires appear to be growing stronger, more widespread, and more likely to happen across longer periods of each year. There were 66,000 wildfires in the United States in 2022, burning 7.5 million acres. And in one new study, researchers found a 246% increase in the number of homes and structures destroyed in the Western United States between the first and second decades of this century. There are a lot of reasons for that trend, but one is that humans have a tendency to want to live very close to nature, and that's a very understandable drive. It's healthy. And Adrienne Edwards believes we don't have to stop living close to nature. Edwards is a botanist, a plant ecologist, a garden designer, and an environmental consultant. She's also a faculty lecturer at California State University, Chico, which is just minutes away from the epicenter of the Camp Fire, which was the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in state history back in 2018. Eighty-five people lost their lives in that fire and nearly 19,000 buildings were destroyed. And Edwards is on a mission to help make sure people and their homes are as safe as possible as fires continue to burn across the U.S. West. To that end, she has co-written a new book, Firescaping Your Home, and she's joining us today to talk about risk reduction in wildfire country. Adrian Edwards, welcome.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: Adrian. A lot of people who were alive on November 22nd of 1963 remember that day, because that's the day that President John Kennedy was shot in Texas. You remember that day for a different reason.
1: Yes, a very different reason. Um, I was living in South Texas and playing in the garage with my little brother. We were just little kids, three years old, and he climbed up on the motorcycle of my dad's, I said I was going to tell, so as he was climbing back down, he uh, knocked the motorcycle over, and the babysitter came, picked him up, took him inside because he had gasoline on his clothes, so she she was cleaning him up, but the gasoline from the tank actually went to the hot water heater and exploded. Interestingly, I didn't know how I got out of that fire. I, I blocked it out. But apparently the babysitter ran out the front door, threw my little brother into the neighbor's arms, called the fire department, and then ran through the flames to save me. And I, have, I had no memory of that until I, I actually got to speak with her about it 50 years later when I found her through a Google search.
0: Did you just hug the heck out of her?
1: Oh, I wish I could. I, I. She lives, still lives in Texas, and I live here in California. But we exchange cards every once in a while, and she's a very dear soul.
0: Now it's really interesting to me that you said you didn't remember getting out because you did remember, you know, how the fire started. Uh, you described it crawling up the walls and and the heat as well. Talk about that.
1: Oh yeah. Well, in my little three and a half year old head, I knew that. If I could get behind some boxes, it it wasn't so hot, but then I knew boxes could burn. And so I was afraid to stand behind them. And by the time I got out, my big sister says I had blisters on my skin from the heat. And it took me at least a year before I would go to sleep at night without the lights on because I wanted to be able to see if there was a fire. So not very logical, but we all need to learn how to prepare for wildfires, but also what to do when they happen and we have to evacuate. Hmm.
0: You you still have a visceral reaction to fire, but you've also made it part of your life. You, you've even helped out on prescribed burns before. Talk about that.
1: Yeah, I have. And actually, that's kind of fun. Um, I've used drip drip torches, right? And under controlled conditions, it's really lovely to see, you know, a low um, managed fire clean out the underbrush, and still, it those kinds of managed cultural burns tend to leave little little pockets of unburned areas, little patches where insects and such can survive, and many other organisms would just go underground, and of course. The larger organisms can just move out of the way. So if we can manage more of our landscapes that way, also knowing you know when to light the fuels so that they don't produce uh, as much smoke, we'd be much better off.
0: And as an ecologist, you've noted that fire is, in many cases, healthy for the environment. And there's a great line really early in your book where you write, I rejoice in the riot of wildflowers and wildlife that follows fire.
1: Oh yes, absolutely. There are actually species that almost never show their faces so to speak until after a fire, after a burn. This happens in a lot of, in some uh, chaparral systems, shrubland systems where, and they're actually called fire followers. Even in forest systems, the canopy may be closed in to the point where some of these species will just stay silent underground, either as bulbs and not bloom or um, as seeds. And some of those plants actually need fire, either the heat or even the chemicals in smoke before they'll germinate.
0: You began teaching at Chico State in 2007, I think, and... Pretty much every year there after there's been wildfires in Butte County, where Chico is, the most famous, the most devastating uh, was the fire that destroyed the nearby city of Paradise in 2018. What was it like for you to experience those, those really terrible days?
1: Oh, my goodness. Tying back to that visceral reaction that I get when I smell a house fire, it's different than a wildfire, right? When you smell buildings burning, you're smelling, you know, the, the casings on the wires and the PVC and the, you know, all the other stuff in our homes. And I just, I literally get goosebumps and feel nauseated. And what I was doing that morning, you know, by the time everybody in Chico could see that huge fire plume, People were already in traffic jams trying to get out on the only, you know, one of only two roads, and, you know, they canceled classes, and I was going to go to the local Walmart on my way home, and the parking lot was crammed already with people who had nowhere to go, and they looked just uh, terrified. Rachel, my co-author, actually lives in Megalia, just above paradise and was in that same campfire footprint. And her neighbor's house burned. Uh, She's in the wildland areas, but hers did not. And, you know, they had done a lot of work to manage their landscape and house to reduce that risk. They were also caught in those traffic jams for almost eight hours. And it's only like a a 40-minute drive up the hill to her house. So...
0: And Rachel couldn't get back to her house for three months afterwards, but her house was spared. You said she had done quite a bit of work. She and her husband had done quite a bit of work on their home to prepare it for something like this, right?
1: Yes. And of course, she has a running list of things where you have to balance, you know, how much benefit am I going to get in making my home more fire resistant and how much is it going to cost me? And they have, you know, a list of things that they're doing over the years to try and make their house more fire resistant. I think uh, she might've even mentioned in the book how they discovered after they bought the house that the, the seals around their windows were completely breaking down. And that's one thing that's pretty easy to fix. You would just remove the caulking and then try and reseal them. And that can actually make it less likely for embers to rest against your house. They also do regular burning. They'll, they'll clear areas, do small burn piles. That said, they were also really lucky because sometimes, no matter what you do, you know, in any given event, you, you can't predict completely what's going to happen, right? So you have to stay safe, too.
0: There's no real good way to get through all of the really good information in your new book in this half-hour radio program. But I thought I thought maybe one of the things we could do is talk a little bit about zones. That's the defensible space around our homes. And let's just kind of take these sequentially. Zone one, this is the very immediate area around our homes and all of the attached structures. Uh, Something from like zero to five feet, or if you're in an area of higher risk, maybe like out to 15 feet. And you've written this is really an area that should have no vegetation or dead organic material at all, right?
1: Correct. And not even, you know, tools... Hoses with leaves, anything like that during fire season that's going to catch fire next to your home is a no-no, right? And as a gardener, that might sound a little heartbreaking, but actually, if you—if there's a, a period of time that's non-fire season, like for, for where we live, it would be winter and early spring, you can grow bulbs and things and then just make sure that that area is cleared out afterwards, in time for fire season.
0: And like wood chippings and bark dust, you know, I man, like we decorate with that stuff all the time. It looks really good in the yard, but that's, that's a bad idea, right?
1: In that non-combustible zone, absolutely. And even synthetics like weed barrier, astroturf, those things carry, they ignite very easily and they carry flames. One of the worst mulches you can use is that those rubberized uh, recycled rubber tire discs that people sometimes put around their trees and shrubs to keep the weeds down. Those are really bad.
0: Those are really bad. Tire fires are not a great thing. No. (laughs) So, So this is sort of the dead zone around our homes, like immediately around our homes. And then past that, there's zone two. That's what you call the lean, clean and green zone. Tell me about that.
1: The lean, clean, and green zone is all about how you manage your landscape. And so one of our biggest motivators for writing this book is the concern that people are going to move into these wildland areas because they're beautiful and then punch holes in them and put down a bunch of irrigated lawn because they've seen these billboards that say you need 100 feet of defensible space and there's nothing there, Right that can actually make your home like a bowling alley for embers. We're arguing that green plants that are properly hydrated can actually provide a screen in some regards to capture some of those embers and are going to be much less flammable than your house itself, which of course is deadwood. And so in the lean, clean and green zone, if you can make sure that your your landscaping is Uh, well-pruned. There's not uh, dead debris. Maybe you have islands of places where it might be mulched with bark mulch, but then other areas that might be pavers or bare ground or gravel, um, that also breaks up the fuel loads that you would see in that area.
0: And then we get to zone three. This is sort of the transition zone between the really heavily managed area around your home and then the more wild areas. This is starting to look a little bit more like the natural habitat, but there's there's some key differentiating points there, right?
1: Right. And so this, um, for a regular fire zone, maybe not on a steep slope that's beyond 30 feet from your structures. Some of us don't live in a place with that much yard, but if you do, the research has shown that that 30 feet uh, between you uh, from your structure and 30 feet out is actually the most effective zone if managed properly for reducing wildfire risks. Beyond that zone, though, you know, we're moving into wildlands because we love wildlife, we love nature. And so you want to be able to support a little bit more, maybe dead snags and uh, a little bit more woody debris but not letting it to get too thick.
0: And this nature, this sort of zone for nature, this natural habitat. I think one of the things that needs to be said about that, that we should really probably remember is that healthy natural habitats do burn sometimes. And if that's not happening, because obviously we don't want wildfires right up on our doorsteps, then they're does still need to be some fuel management and mitigation that needs to be done even in these you know close to wild habitats
1: yeah and sometimes that might be letting wildfires burn uh, you know on an appropriate time scale right so in a grassland area that might be more often than in a shrubland right so in Utah, you have very different habitats than many areas that were around here in California, um, but another problem for deciding when you can use fire as a management tool is what percent of it is invasive species and what those invasive species are doing. I know that cheatgrass is a really big problem in parts of Utah, for example, and cheatgrass ignites really easily and it kind of Stitches together all of the fuel so that it's easier for a more catastrophic fire to happen.
0: There are probably some people listening to this who are thinking, well, none of this is applicable to me. I live in a neighborhood where, you know, there's 10 or maybe 20 feet away from my home. There's another home. And that was really the case in a lot of the neighborhoods in Paradise, too, where once the fire entered the city, it spread not from you know, uh, bushes to bushes, but it, it was literally spreading from home to home. So now we really have to talk about firescaping as a community effort, not just an individual effort, right?
1: Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. And I think every week there's probably a new FireSafe Council um, being established in new communities all over the United States. All you have to do is Google FireSafe Councils and you will find... Uh, information on how you might be able to set yours up and also some of the things that you might need to do to keep your community safe. So, I mean, just like a chain, one weak link can cause a fire to be more catastrophic in terms of structural
0: damages. Okay, and this is a sociology question, but I'm just curious if you have any insights in this. You just mentioned like the one weak link, right? What happens when you put together this fire safe council and you know, you got that one grumpy guy who's like, no, I'm not doing any of that stuff. How, how do you manage that problem?
1: Yeah, you don't bully them. That's that <laughs> because we, we do know from research that that doesn't work. Um, There are ways that you can mediate. You can call in maybe the local fire captain or fire expert, a wildland fire person. You can make gentle suggestions, um, but certainly talking and including all of the shareholders. It may be that somebody has a favorite plant that's, you know, say a citrus tree right up next to their house. Well, There are things that you can do to mitigate that too, right? So maybe that citrus tree isn't such a problem if it's well pruned, it's kept clean, it's kept hydrated, and it's not on the windward side of the house.
0: And wind is an important thing for people to understand. Really early in the book, you recommend that people uh, get to know the wind patterns around their homes and not just the big, like, synoptic ones, but really, like, like the little ways in which wind operates even down to the level of what's going on on their balconies and around their front door and their back door.
1: Yeah, I think we could all take a walk around our yards and see places where the wind eddies, and the evidence of that is going to be little pile, piles of leaves and schnumpf, right? I don't know if that's a real word. but
0: I like that uh, word. That's good. We're going to coin that if it's not.
1: <laughs> right? So that's telling you that that's a place where embers could collect and ignite as well. So number one, you'd have to keep those areas cleaned out. But number two, maybe you could plant a couple of shrubs strategically further away from the house that would change the wind pattern, slow them down and and stop those eddies so that you don't get as much debris in that corner or that nook.
0: Now, when you're walking around people's homes, I mean, actually, I'm wondering, I always kind of ask a version of this question almost everybody. You know, when your brain is wired the way that your brain is wired, when you're walking around the neighborhood, can you turn it off and just appreciate your neighbors, or are you always looking for those things, or are they always kind of capturing your attention? Like, oh, gosh, Judy, you're not, you know, you need a windbreak there. Harold, why... <laughs> why haven't you mowed your lawn lately?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh my goodness. You know, no, I can't turn it off. (laughs) Um, I feel like Martha Stewart or something, but one of, there are two things that are going on in the little noise speakers in my head. And one is, um, why are you destroying habitat? by just having a green lawn and and little topiary shrubs that don't support birds or insects or what have you, right? Where's your wildlife? If you can't hear sounds in your yard of insects and birds, then you have a virtual desert. On the other hand, when I see a palm tree or a, you know, a dead shrub right up next to a building, I wanna panic and go knock on their door and say, hey, can I help you take that out, right? <laughs> It's hard to turn it off, but now I'm guilty of being do as I say, but not as I do, because I have problems in my own yard that I need to manage and pay attention to. So, you know, I'm, nobody's perfect.
0: Yeah, nobody's perfect. And it takes time. You can't do this all at once. It's, it's, it's a lot of effort to uh, make a property more defensible.
1: Yes, and it's, it's a year-round thing, and you can't just do it once and expect it to be done.
0: We've had a lot of researchers on this program who have talked about the importance of trees in municipal environments for reducing urban heat and providing habitat for birds and other animals and, you know, oxygen for removing pollutants and all of that. So how do we balance all of the positive aspects of trees with the fact that trees are also potential fuels for wildfire?
1: Well, actually, that's something that we discuss in the book because we like trees. And um, it turns out that, of course, again, a healthy living tree Um, with the branches limbed up a little bit and no dead branches or few dead branches in the top can actually help protect your home from some of the flying embers during a wildfire. They can also provide sort of what you might call a fire shelter belt in the same way that farmers have used wind shelter belts or snow shelter belts. So if you have trees and shrubs where the wind can pass through that slows the wind down, it reduces the eddies, and it can actually help protect your home. Plus, you know, it's good for the environment.
0: There's a woman in your book that you mentioned who, and there's a picture of her and her beautiful, I think it was an oak tree that sort of like over, it was almost like an umbrella over her house, but she described seeing it catch the embers and protect her, her home from.
1: Yes, and she has a really old, you know, wood house um and this is this is something these subtleties um can be really difficult when you're trying to get fire insurance for example for example and you're having to argue with an adjuster who doesn't really understand your property everybody's property is going to have its own little uh, idiosyncrasies and uniqueness Um, and i think it would be a crime if we let an insurance adjuster tell us that we have to cut down a magnificent old tree because it's a fire hazard if it's well maintained.
0: Well, and this is, this really goes to understanding your own property and understanding how fire, if it hasn't happened in your area yet, how it will happen once it arrives. And in most of the American West and increasing places in the world, it will happen at some point.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, look at Canada, look at Louisiana, look at Lahaina, right? Um, but in all of those cases, um, with Canada, they've had severe drought and they do have some forests that are overgrown. But, you know, historic fire scars and fire rings tell us that there have been catastrophic fires up there before. There have been fires in Louisiana before. Lahaina was a little different, but it's because we, Uh, changed the habitat there with our sugar plantations that were then abandoned and invaded by invasive grasses that were highly ignitable and that contributed to the perfect storm there. So I don't know if, (laughs) we all need to be prepared.
0: And I mean, this is not necessarily a good thing, I guess. I mean, I guess it's a good thing because you wrote this book that it's going to be useful for a very long time to come, but you'd love it if this book wasn't useful, right?
1: Well, we just need to do more things to make our homes and our families and our pets safer while supporting our wildland environments around us.
0: That's Adrian Edwards. She's a botanist, plant ecologist, garden designer, and environmental consultant. And she's also a faculty lecturer at California State University, Chico, and the co-author of the new book, Firescaping Your Home, A Manual for Readiness in Wildfire Country. Adrian Edwards, thank you.
1: Thank you so much. This was excellent.
0: Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030 and on KCPW at 10 on Thursday and noon on Sunday. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And however you listen, please consider giving your support to public radio. You can do that at donate.nprstations.org slash upr. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Let go have big ideas.